Glad to be with you all again this morning. Um, glad we could come together around God's word. Glad we could sing praises to an awesome God. It's good to be here. Like, it's truly good to be here. Um, so I'm thankful you all are here this morning. Thankful we could be together. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8 again. Uh, so if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I'd invite you to open it with me. Matthew chapter 8. We'll pick up in verse 18 today. Um, but last week, last week we started back into Matthew. We picked up right at the beginning of chapter 8. And, and we saw some, some really awesome things last week. Uh, so for those of you who weren't here, uh, read the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 8 and you will see the power of Jesus like on display for everybody to see. Um, it's truly awesome. If you read God's word and you believe God's word, um, you will see that Jesus undoubtedly has power. Um, and this week, since we're in this series that we've called Power and Purpose, this week we're going to see some of his purpose come to the forefront. Um, it's not as if his power somehow takes a back seat because it's still on display. Even the way that he calls people to follow him has authority behind it. But what we see is his purpose begin to come to the forefront of, of the picture. Um, and this week, we'll see Jesus calling people to follow him. Now, as I thought about this this week, we, we all want healing. Uh, all of us want healing. I mean, there's the whole thing. If I went around and asked you all if you wanted healing from whatever you're dealing with, physical, mental, um, emotional, spiritual struggles that you are going through. If I asked you, do you want healing from that? Of course you're going to say yes. Who doesn't want healing for the struggles they're going through? Who doesn't want that? Everybody wants healing. Everybody does. Absolutely we do. But we rarely want to do the, we rarely want to do the things that we need to do as a result of that healing. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, those of you who know me probably um, or have known me for a while, you know I ran track in high school. Um, I, I, I like to run long distance. I wasn't as good as Jaden, but I, I like to run long distance. Um, I know there's other distance runners, but whatever. Uh, so so I, y'all are going to think this guy's nuts. That's fair. Um, ran long distance in high school. I ran the two mile, and unfortunately my dad was the coach, which meant I showed up to track practice. A lot of days it was, Jared, go run eight miles. Jared, go run nine miles. I'm like, nine miles? Dad, it's a two mile race. Why do I... It's over distance, Jared. Just go run. Whatever. So anyway, I ran in high school, and that's what I did. I remember my junior year, though. It was track, track season, and uh, for some reason, my right knee started swelling up on me. I didn't know why, but it just started puffing up, and it got to the point where I couldn't bend my knee without a lot of pain. So I got to doing that thing where you're walking around like this, you know, um, and I felt like a dork walking around with a straight leg all the time because it, it felt fine to put pressure on. As long as I didn't bend the knee, it was fine. Um, so it was one of those things where, well, it needed, something needed to happen because, well, it's track season. I need to go run. But you can't run with, well, no, not well. You all seen Forrest Gump? Like, the braces have to fall off for Forrest to run, okay? So anyway, uh, it was just, it was painful to do anything. And I wanted, I wanted healing for that knee. I did. So I got to go to the doctor, and there were options, of course. One thing was you could drain the fluid off, but even then, you still have to take it easy for a while, or, or you could let it go down on its own over time. Um, I, I decided to let it go down on its own over time. But had I gone in and taken the quick fix so that the pain was removed to get the fluid drained off of it so that it wouldn't be as painful immediately, there would still be follow-up things that I had to do. Running is a high-impact thing. Like, every time you take a step, it's putting pressure on your joints, right? You all know walking and running, what that's like, right? Anybody? Okay, whatever. Uh, so, it, it's, it's, 
It puts pressure on your joints. So even if I had got that drained off, it still would have required me to do low-impact exercise for a time. I didn't want to do that. It's track season, and I needed to be out running. I didn't want to take it easy. I didn't want to have to ride a bike at track practice instead of running. I needed to run. See, that's the thing. We all want the healing, but we don't often want to do what, what we need to do as a result of that healing. Like, if I had just gone out and started running again right away, what's going to happen? Y'all, it's going to swell up again. It's going to swell up again. We're going to have the same thing. So instead, what, I think what we see, now understand, that's not a perfect analogy. Um, my analogies are just okay. Um, this is not a perfect analogy. But what we see in the text today is everybody wants the healing. But now Jesus steps in and he says, come, follow me. Do, like, take the steps that you should take after you receive the healing. Come after me. Now, Jesus heals. But if we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to require changes. It's going to require things to look different than they did before. And that's, I think, what comes to the forefront of this text. Is Jesus, he demonstrates his power. Now he shows his purpose. And he says, look, there are changes that need to be made. And it's going to cost you. Following Jesus will always cost you. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to admit, uh, the lights are a little bit darker in here today. Do you all notice that? Um, I know some people have a hard time seeing. I actually requested for the lights to be down today because, well, uh, this, this is kind of heavy for me. Because, honestly, I didn't finish writing this sermon until much later in the week than I wanted to. Because, as Steph will attest, I, I struggled to write it. Not because I struggled knowing what the text was getting at, but because I had a hard time... <coughs> Tell asking myself, I had a hard time asking myself, am I faithful to this text? And I had to answer, no, I have not been faithful to this text that we're going to look at today. So I struggled and I struggled and I wrestled and I wrestled. So it was a little emotional for me and I'm going to try to challenge you all today. And I just want you to think these things through. So we're just, we're going to set a tone for that. And I hope that I can challenge you. I hope that you want to change because I think God's word commands us to change. So Would you all stand with me out of respect for reading God's word? Let's read out of Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read from 18 to 22. Just five verses, and I know it's dark, but five verses, we can make it through this, okay? Matthew chapter 8, beginning of verse 18. This is from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. (laughs) Jesus told him, Foxes have dens, and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. Five verses. Five verses is all we're going to look at today. At least primarily five verses. But the implications of these five verses show us that there are certain changes that we have to make if we as a church and we as individuals are going to be faithful in following after Jesus. So I want us to see these changes that are required of us, that we have to make if we are going to be faithful in following Jesus. Let's follow him faithfully. And the first is that following Jesus, it will require us to reevaluate success. It will require that we reevaluate success. See, we're going to back up just a few weeks here and... 
And what we've seen as we've, as we've started through Matthew here is we've seen Jesus step onto the pages of history as he's, I say step onto the pages of history, understand he's pre-existent, but he steps onto the pages of history as a man by being born of a virgin and after being raised as a child in Nazareth, this strange guy named John shows up out in the wilderness um, and, and he's preaching, he's teaching about the kingdom of heaven and he's baptizing people down to the Jordan River and here comes Jesus. Comes down to John, says, I need to be baptized by you. John's like, well, I don't think I, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, not the other way around. But eventually John gives in, baptizes Jesus, and this leads to this grand scene here down at the Jordan River with the heavens being ripped apart, this dove descending, the spirit descending in the form of a dove. And we hear God's voice say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And we see this grand scene. Then his ministry begins in Galilee, and he calls a few followers, performs some miracles, begins teaching in the area, and it's in this context that we saw the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives this this long manifesto on what it looks like to follow him. Like, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, go read the Sermon on the Mount. That's a good place to start. It's not the entirety of it, but it's a good place to start. Okay? So we see him give the Sermon on the Mount, but then he comes down from the mountain and does some crazy stuff. Y'all like crazy, crazy stuff that we looked at last week. As a matter of fact, he starts doing the very things that a good Jewish man wasn't supposed to do. He starts touching unclean things. Like, here comes this leper. Jesus touches him. Here's this woman with a high fever. Jesus touches her. Here comes this this, this Gentile. And Jesus loves him and heals his servant. These are things a Jewish man wasn't supposed to do. But Jesus does all these things. And in, as he's doing this, rather than being contaminated by the outside, Jesus actually heals the things that are broken outside of him. See, most people, if they came into contact with these things, they would be considered unclean. But Jesus made the unclean clean. So Jesus does all this expressing his power. Expressing his power in a very real way. But now, now the crowd is really growing. See, if you go back to last week, it actually says there was a crowd as they came down off the mountain. After the Sermon on the Mount, there was already a crowd. But then at the end of last week's text, all these people are being brought to Jesus to be healed. The crowd has grown. It got bigger. So now there's all of these people coming around Jesus. So we get to verse 18 here today, and Jesus has to do something because this crowd is getting out of hand. Like it's getting too big. It says in verse 18, when Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. Um, now, at this point, at this point, I, I had to, I just, I have to talk about something that we all claim to know. I, I imagine that the vast majority of us in this room, we would claim to know this, this thing. But I think that very few of us, we, I think very few of us behave as if we truly believe it. Okay, and, and that includes myself. Okay, so we need to talk about this. Now, first thing, first things first, let's just talk about where this is, okay? Um, we have a map. This is the Sea of, the sea of Galilee. If, oh, uh, yeah, projector likes to be a little temperamental. But this is the Sea of Galilee, okay? Now, Jesus starts his ministry here, the Sermon on the Mount, and he's somewhere up around Capernaum, okay? He's somewhere up around that, okay? And that's where he is. But whenever this crowd starts pressing in around him, we see him leave from Capernaum to go to the other side of the sea. Now, he doesn't go down here, okay? That, hey, yeah, see, it's not, that's not where it is, so don't, don't, yeah. Anyway, it's actually, everybody turn and look at Steve. Steve's pretty, okay? Yeah, he's right down here. This is Steve. He's pretty. Um, so Capernaum's up here. Man, I am really not that shaky, but whew, right there. No, I want to do this now. I can do it. So there's Capernaum. No, I can do this. 
I can do this. There's Capernaum, and there it is right there. That's where he goes. Oh, man, come on, Steve. <laughs> All right, stop looking at Steve. He doesn't like it. Okay, so he comes across to right here, and that's where we're going to be next week. But he says, let's go across the sea. Now, he does go across the sea, and it may not seem like it's all that far to us because that distance from Capernaum to the point that he goes is about five miles across the sea. That may not sound like a big deal to us. But keep in mind, we're in the first century, so you can't just hop in your motorboat and just zip across the, across the sea. That's a trip, y'all. If you wanted to go by land, if you wanted to go around, around the sea to get over to the place where he's headed to, it's, gonna, it's about eight to ten miles depending on how you get there. Again, doesn't sound like a big deal, but keep in mind, you're walking eight to ten miles. Eight to ten miles. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us. To them, that's a big deal. Okay? So, Jesus goes away from the crowd. Now, again, it's not impossible for them to follow him around that, but it would be difficult. It certainly would be difficult. So, Jesus sees the crowd. He goes across the sea. Which made me ask two questions. Two questions. First, does Jesus care about the crowd? And second, should we, as the church, desire a crowd? And I think those two things go hand in hand. Right? Did Jesus, did Jesus care about the crowd, and should we desire a crowd? Okay, I mean, I think they go hand in hand. Now, let's answer those one at a time. Does Jesus care? Yes. Yes, Jesus cares about the crowd. Of course Jesus cares about this crowd. All over the Bible, God's mission, his purpose, like, this seri- like the series title, like his power and purpose, right? His purpose all throughout the Bible, God's purpose is to see all people saved. He wants people to come to him. He wants people to be saved all throughout the Bible, all people's. Wants them to be saved. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 is maybe the most pointed place where we see this in, in, in Scripture. And it's just very clear. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God wants people to be saved. Of course he does. He cares about the crowd. He wants people to come to know who he is, repent of their sins, and fall after him, be saved from their sins. He wants all to come to repentance. So yes, he cares about the crowd. Absolutely he cares for the crowd. Which made me ask, should we desire a crowd? Like, as the church, should we desire a crowd? Because you look at church culture right now, and it's all about drawing more people, having a bigger building, having cooler stuff. Like, there's all of this stuff. Should we desire a crowd? I think the answer is yes. I, I think it is. And uh, before you say, well, that's not what we see in the Bible. Well, I think we do. I think we should see a crowd. Because the truth is, the truth is, we want people to come to know Jesus. And when somebody comes to know Jesus, do you just leave them on the outside, or do you invite them into the church? They become a part of the church. Absolutely we want to see the church grow. Absolutely we want to see a crowd because we want to see people come to know Jesus. Now, the reason I bring this up is that, that we have two perceptions. Either one, the crowd's everything, or two, the crowd is something we should reject. And neither one of those is right. Neither one of those, I believe, is true. See, I, I want to make it clear. A crowd is not inherently evil. Drawing a crowd is not inherently evil. Jesus does it all over the place. As a matter of fact, he preaches to a crowd in the Sermon on the Mount that we just looked at. Now there's this crowd around him. He's healing people. Clearly, the crowd is not inherently evil. It's not wrong to have a crowd. The point I want to make, because I think Jesus makes it repeatedly, is that the the bigger crowd is not the driving factor. It is not the focus. See, time and time again, we're, we're going to see throughout this gospel account, is that Jesus goes away from the crowd. Time and time again, we see the crowd start to build, crowd starts to build, crowd starts to build, Jesus goes away from it. He sees the crowd sometimes actually as a hindrance. So he goes away from it. Because the truth is that crowds, are, crowds can be built pretty easily. They really can. 
Um, you see it in churches all the time where crowds are built and there doesn't seem to be any real life there. And I think it's pretty easy to build a crowd. All you got to do is find a passionate speaker, throw out some cool music, and try not to rock the boat too much, and you're going to build a crowd. I believe you can. But that wasn't Jesus' goal. His goal wasn't just to build a bigger crowd. That wasn't it. His view of success did not necessarily include the size of the crowd. He saw success differently. See, the reason I say we need to reevaluate success is because we need to see success differently. Jesus didn't see it as having a bigger crowd. It's not like he saw this crowd coming. He's like, okay, we are succeeding in our mission. That's not what he did. He saw the crowd. He went away from it. See, I saw this really cool thing in an article I read this week, and uh, uh, it's very simple, very simple. Um, I think we have this slide. It just says attendance. Um, this is very simple, but I thought this was, this was good. Attendance does not equal impact. Attendance does not equal impact. I'm glad y'all are here. Don't misunderstand. I'm so glad y'all are here. But just because we build a bigger crowd does not mean that we have a bigger impact. As a matter of fact, I think you can have great attendance and have very little impact. Now, the flip, I think, would be true. If you have impact, it will equal attendance. I think the reverse would be true. But attendance does not necessarily indicate impact. Now, that hit me. That hit me. Because how do we view success in the church? How do we view success? I'll, I'll, I'll admit, like, I'll confess. Oftentimes I view success as having more people in the seats on a Sunday morning. I do. And I'm confident I'm not alone. I've talked to people who say, like, and it is, it's exciting. You fill a room. There's something exciting about that. And we're like, yeah, something's happening. As a matter of fact, I remember, I remember at one point talking to a friend who was a part of another church, and he said, he said, like, yeah, we're growing, everything's going really good. You just know God's doing something there. In other words, because the church was growing, that had to have meant that God was doing something. Is it possible to have attendance without having impact? I believe it is. Now, I'm not saying he was right or wrong. God may or may not have been doing something there. But simple attendance does not necessarily mean that there is impact for the kingdom. See, I I really wrestled with this. Now, I also want to tell you this. I also want to tell you this. I don't necessarily believe that numbers are bad. Even tracking numbers, I don't believe that that's bad. Numbers can't be good or bad. Numbers are neutral. Numbers are just, they're just data. It's not good or bad. How we interpret that is really the problem. The way we see those numbers are the problem. See, what we need as followers of Jesus, we need to be engaged in real discipleship. And that's what Jesus does, right? He sees the crowd and he flees from it so that he can engage in personal discipleship. The crowds start to press in on him, either one, to make him king by force, or two, they come around to where Jesus doesn't have time to focus on the 12 men that he spends the vast majority of his ministry with. The crowds can be a distraction. See, what we need is personal discipleship. We need people who are growing, who are teaching individuals, or even small groups. Like one thing that we, we've talked about as elders and we've even instituted for a time was, was uh, I thought, very, very good small groups. We had people coming together in smaller groups to talk about God's word, what it says, and how we can live in light of that. And I think we should continue to press forward with that. And not only that, but then there's personal discipleship. Do you meet with somebody who is pouring into you, and are you pouring into somebody else? Like, and I'm not just saying accidentally. Like, there's some of y'all I run into on occasion, and we, we talk. And sometimes we even talk about, like, really good biblical things that are challenging and actually encourage us to live godly lives. Like, that's fantastic. I'm talking about intentional discipleship, where you go out of your way, and you say, no, we are going to get together. We are going to discuss God's word. We are going to do life together, and we're going to see how we can be on mission together. Like, how can we teach people? This is part of Jesus' commission, right? The Great Commission. Go, make disciples. 
baptizing. And then the last part that we oftentimes leave out is teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, Jesus says. Teaching, discipleship, like raising people up to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus leaves the crowd for the sake of discipleship. See, instead of seeing success as attendance, which is not necessarily bad, or seeing success as the size of the church we attend, we need to start seeing success through Jesus' eyes, through his lens. Success for Jesus was replicating himself, like pouring his life into these other men, who then in turn poured their lives into other men, who poured their lives into other men. Um, Success for Jesus was replicating himself with his priorities and his purpose in mind poured himself into his closest followers. Um, there's one more chart, and this is from discipleship.org, and I thought this was, uh, this is really, really cool. First of all, it looks good. You want to put that one up? Yeah. This one just looks cool, first of all. So I thought, hey, look at this. This looks, this looks awesome. I first heard about this from a guy named Peyton Jones, who is a church planner. Um, and, and he writes about it in a book, but this is actually from discipleship.org, so that all gets confusing and y'all don't care. Anyway, I, I wanted to walk through this because this is a scale, a five-level scale of where churches fall. And I, I think that this is, this is actually helpful for thinking through, are we living biblically? Are we, are we trying to replicate ourselves into other people? Are we discipling others who then disciple others? And I think this is a good scale for helping us to do that. So you see that there's plus or minus plus and then the multiplication symbol over there. Right? And you have level one, two, three, four, and five. Y'all can, y'all can track with that, right? Hope so. Can y'all count to five? Y'all awake? One, two, three, four, five? Good. Proud of you. Good job. Y'all are so smart. All right. So you have level one here that just has the, the minus sign over, right? The subtraction sign. These are subtracting ch- churches. These are churches that are declining in attendance. Like regularly declining in membership and attendance. Then you have level two here. These are identified as plateauing churches. They're neither adding nor subtracting. They're somewhere in between where they just kind of plateaued. And eventually, most of those churches do wind up becoming subtracting churches. Most of them do. Okay? So that's level two. They're plateauing. They're not really growing. Level three is an adding church. These churches are adding members. They are adding people on a Sunday morning. Now, they are growing. There is growth there, but it's by addition. Now, there's level four. These are called reproducing churches. These are places where there is intentional discipleship, and they are doing the best they can to plant churches, to look outwards and say, not only do we want to grow as a church by seeing disciples made, but we want to plant other churches. Like, we want to see other communities that come together around Christ start forming. Like, we want to see other local churches and other places start popping up because we're discipling people. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's a level four church. And there's a lot of those. There are a lot of those out there around the country. There's a lot of level four churches. Now, there's very few level five churches. Level five churches were identified where they not only want to disciple others and see them disciple others, but they say that they also want to be a church that plants other churches by discipling other people. But they also invest in them that mission to where that church then goes and plants another church. And I I may be off, but I'm pretty sure level five churches go to the fourth generation of church. Where not only did this church plant a church, but so this church planted this church, this church planted this church, but then this church planted another church. There's very few level five churches that are actually out there multiplying churches. Multiplying. See, we don't want to just grow by addition. By like saying, hey, come and see what's going on. We're going to add a person or two here or there, add a person or two here or there, and we're just going to keep on growing so we can build a bigger building, have cooler stuff, all that stuff. Whatever. We want to be a level five church that wants to make disciples and then see those disciples make other disciples and see those disciples make more because, uh, again, y'all are good at math. We just proved that. You can count to five, right? You got one person that divides into two. 
or multiplies into two. I shouldn't say divide. We're not dividing churches. We're multiplying churches. You got one that divides into two. Now, those two go out and divide, or divide. Man, y'all, math is hard. Um, multiply into two more. So now you got four. Y'all good at math? After you have four, then what do you have? Eight. And then after eight, what do you have? 32, 64, 128. You can keep going. You get the point. 256, we could go all day, y'all. And they just grow and grow. I can't go all day, but you guys could because you're smarter than me. That's what we want to see. Disciples multiply, and then we will see churches multiply. Impact will equal attendance. We will see churches grow if we are actually investing in other people and see them grow. Jesus saw the crowd, and he went away from the crowd for the purpose of replicating himself, for the purpose of pouring into others. Are we committed to success in that light and actually pouring ourselves into other people? Do we view success that way? Because that's how Jesus saw success. So, if we're going to follow Jesus, it will require us to reevaluate success. The second thing I think we see here is following Jesus requires us to reprioritize mission. It requires us to reprioritize mission. Verse 19, it says, A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, on the surface, this sounds like a good thing, right? A scribe, like this is a religious man, comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I'm in. I'm with you. Now, just imagine the kind of credibility this would give Jesus. There's a scribe. This is one of the religious leaders. Now, there's this religious leader calling Jesus rabbi, saying, I'm following after him. I'm sitting under his teaching. That's going to give Jesus some, some religious credibility, right? I mean, think about that. That sounds like a good thing. And on the surface, he sounds committed, doesn't he? He says, teacher, I'm going to follow you wherever. I don't care where you go, I'm going to follow you. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is getting ready to go across the Sea of Galilee. So he says, I'll follow you anywhere. Anywhere. But Jesus' response, I think it tells us a lot about this scribe and how committed he truly was. Okay? So look at his response. He says, Foxes have dens, and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, a few things we need to note here. First, Jesus doesn't flat out reject this scribe. He doesn't say, no, you cannot follow me. He doesn't say that, does he? See, I often thought, well, Jesus rejected him, right? But he doesn't really reject him, does he? He doesn't actually say, you're not able to follow him. Now, the indication seems to be that the scribe is turned away because Jesus challenges him. Challenges him pretty, pretty strongly here. But Jesus never says, no, you cannot follow me. He only gave him a clear warning. Second thing we need to note here is that he tells the scribe that to be a close disciple, to be a close follower of Jesus, it means sacrifice. It means sacrifice. He says, I don't have a place to lay my head. D.A. Carson, he, he says it really well. He says, strictly speaking, it was neither invitation nor rebuke, but a pointed way of saying that true discipleship to the Son of Man is not comfortable and should not be undertaken without counting the cost. See, Jesus' call to follow him, it's costly. It is a costly call, and I don't want anybody to lie to you. I certainly don't want to give you the wrong impression. We hear the healings last week, like Jesus touches the untouchable. He heals the unhealable. He does incredible things. That all sounds great, but understand, following Jesus is costly. It is costly. So I don't want to leave you thinking, well, it's always going to be easy. See, here, Jesus tells this religious man that to follow him is going to cost him an awful lot. He says you're going to be homeless, basically, is what he tells him. You know, foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests. I don't have a home. So this is going to be homeless. So he reminds, but it reminds me a lot of Luke 14, 28 to 33. Now, most of you are probably familiar with this, but I'm going to read it anyway. And this is a long section, so stay with me. 
It says, for which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid a foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started, but started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Jesus is telling him flat out, count the cost. Following Jesus is costly. You hear that last line? Every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. The cost of following Jesus is, is immense. It's going to cost you. So count the cost before you say, yeah, I'm, I'm in on Jesus. Like, I'm going to follow Jesus. Count the cost. Are you really willing to make the sacrifices necessary to follow him? And the point that Jesus is making whenever the scribe approaches him and he makes there in Luke 14, the point in all of that is, I believe, you have an opportunity to follow Jesus. I believe you have an opportunity to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't turn the scribe away. He doesn't say, no, you cannot follow me. So I believe you have an opportunity. But understand that following Jesus requires everything. Jesus doesn't want you to go halfway. doesn't say, well, yeah, I'll come part way with you, but I'm going to make sure that I, I keep my, my safety net over here. I'm, like, I'm going to be kind of in, kind of not in. No, no. He says it's going to cost you an awful lot. It's going to be costly, at least in terms of material and worldly gain. Because Jesus calls his followers to go to those who need the good news. Right? He calls his followers to follow him as he goes to those who need good news. Yeah, so follow him. The truth of the Bible is that if we live the life that is found in Christ, then we will be living for the expansion of his kingdom. For his kingdom, not for the kingdoms of this world. To use Peter's language, he says that we're exiles here. Like this is not our final destination. Like this is not our final home. There's something else. So if we are following Jesus, his mission will become more significant to us than the possessions of this world. So what is your priority? What is my priority? What is our priority? The temporary passions and pleasures of this world? The things of this kingdom? Or the eternal purpose of King Jesus? What is our priority? See, if we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to require us to reevaluate success and reprioritize mission. Mission was Jesus' priority. It was. Is that our priority? Being on mission, taking the gospel to others. Third thing we see is that following Jesus requires us to restructure relationships. It requires us to restructure relationships. Verse 21. Lord, another of his disciples said, first, let me go bury my father. Okay, now first of all, this guy was called a disciple. It says, one of the disciples came to him, right? Another of his disciples said. Now, the word here doesn't necessarily mean that he was already fully committed to Jesus. It, that's not what it indicates. Instead, this word can mean somebody who, who agrees with or wants to be under the teaching, at least to some level. This does not mean he was fully committed to Jesus at this point. Instead, it means that he was generally following him. But this disciple's request, to me, it seems reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, really, just, just think about the request. He says, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Just on the surface, sounds reasonable. But when we dig a little bit deeper into the intention and the statement at hand, it seems to be more of an excuse to delay following after Jesus. That's what it seems to be. So the first thing he says after he calls Jesus Lord, of course, is, is, is he says, first, let me go bury my father. First. We've talked about this word a couple times. I think this is an important word. This is the word proton. 
Y'all remember talking about that? Y'all remember hearing that? In the Greek, this is the word proton, okay? It means the thing above everything else. It shows the priority of the person saying it. This is the word proton. It says, first, the priority, the very most important thing, let me go bury my father. My father is the most important thing. This man is committed to his family, and he should be committed to his family. Of course you should be committed to your family. I'm not standing up here saying, well, turn your back on your father. <laughs> Some of you are in here with your parents right now, like, turn your back on your father. My kids, I don't see them, so maybe that's a good thing. Don't, don't turn your back on your parents. That's, that's not the point Jesus is making here. He's not saying just walk away. Instead, what, what many scholars believe is that this man was really requesting a hiatus until after his father had died, that he wasn't actually dead yet. He says, I've got this aging father. First, let me go bury him, and then I'll be freed up to go follow you. So let me take care of this matter first. Like, I don't know if it's going to be a day, a week, a month, a year. I have no idea. But the indication is that this man is still alive, and he's saying, look, let me, let me bury my father first. Let me stay here until my father dies, and then we'll bury him, and then I'll come follow you, Jesus. Let me do that. <laughs> In other words, this man says, my family, caring for my father, that's the most important thing to me, and I need to be around to care for him even more than I need to follow you, Jesus. Let me stick around for that. But Jesus, Jesus gives this shocking reply to this seemingly understandable request. Right? Shocking reply. Verse 22. Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Whew. Can you all imagine just being standing there when Jesus says this? This guy brings this seemingly reasonable request, right? First, let me bury my father. And Jesus says, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Like, can you just imagine hearing that? come off of the lips of Jesus. Like, that was shocking. That is shocking. But see, what we need to understand is that the thrust of this statement is the first two words in English. Follow me. Jesus says, follow me. Jesus is calling this disciple to come and be closely connected, to, to learn from him, to spend time with him, to live with him, to walk with him, to be taught by him. Jesus says, come and make, like, be with me. Like, be near me. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. When God calls us, when Jesus calls us to follow him, like, understand, it's to be with him, to learn from him, to sit under his teaching, to be near to him. So he says, come, follow me. Spend your time with me. And nothing short of what Jesus is saying here is, again, something he will teach more clearly later on. He's going to hit this again and again throughout this gospel. Maybe the most pointed place is Matthew chapter 12, verses 48 to 50. And here, Jesus is told, he's got this crowd around him, he's teaching this crowd, and, and he's told, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to talk to you. And Jesus' response is, is this, he says, it says, he replied to the one who was speaking with him, or to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Y'all, I think Jesus has a sense of humor. Jesus told, hey, your mother and brothers are out here. He's like, who's my mom? I don't know who that is. Who's, who's my brother? I have brothers. Who are these people? But then it says, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For everyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Like, you do my will? Do the will of my Father in heaven? Those people are my family. Those are the people I'm closest to. See, Jesus is saying we need to completely restructure the way that we view relationships. If your family is more important to you than Jesus, you have missed the mark. Jesus wants to be first. He demands to be the closest commitment you have. Nothing but total commitment will do. Let's give a hypothetical, which are sometimes dangerous but sometimes fun. So understand this is a hypothetical. Okay? Um, first of all, um, I'll, I'll just tell you one of the things that my family does, and uh, this is a good opportunity. 
I've said this before. I think you all ought to have a time of family worship in your home. I've said it before. I still believe that's true. If you don't have a time of family worship in your home, find a time to do it. Um, it has changed my family drastically, I think, for the better. Um, we have a time of family worship every night where we get together, we read God's word, we pray together. And one of the things that we've started doing is we've started praying for unreached peoples around the world. Do you have that map in there? Um, yes. Okay. So this, this map, um, it says progress of the gospel by people group. Now, um, this is from a resource called the Joshua Project. And I think I might have mentioned it before, but I, I love this resource. Okay. They, they have gone around and they have identified distinct people groups by region. So they find individual people groups and where they're living. And the red in that map, those are unreached people groups. People that are less than 2% Christian. Less than 2% of the population of those people groups are Christian. Okay? They're virtually unreached by the gospel. Okay? Yellow, those would be formative or, or a nominal church where there is, there is starting to be some kind of presence or there may be a superficial kind of presence of the gospel in those areas. Um, and, and so it's kind of forming, but it's not really established as we would think of the church being established. And the green is where there is an established church. There is a significant church presence. Okay? So that's what the Joshua Project has done here. Now, the reason I want to bring this up is let's just say that you... You, wherever you are, however old you are, doesn't matter. Um, let's just say that you believe that you've been called by God to be some kind of vocational missionary. And you believe that God has called you to go to, let's just, let's just randomly point, someplace in the red here on this map, either, either over in here or over in here. And the reason those places are red is because there is clear opposition to the gospel. Like, people either don't want to hear it or they will not tolerate hearing the gospel. Okay? So, this resource shows you where... People are Christians, and where there is not a strong church presence. Okay? So let's just say you've been called to go to one of these red areas. Or if you want, let's just say yellow area. Okay, whatever. I, I don't care. You've been called to go to some place that's difficult to go. Let's just say it that way. And you truly believe that you've been called by God to go there. You've prayed about it. You've thought about it. You've studied God's word, and you are just convinced God's calling you to go. But your parents, if you're a younger person, or let's just say that you're retired... Um, Whatever. So either your parents or your children, somebody says, well, I'm just not sure that's the, that's the best idea right now. Like, do you see the obstacles in the way? And they start to push against whether or not you should go to those difficult places. Okay. Now, I certainly think you should seek godly counsel. Let me start with that. I absolutely think you should seek godly counsel. Yes. But my question is, whenever it comes down to it, what is most important? Keeping peace within your family or... Going where you know God has called you. What is most important? The proton. First. What is the most important? See, I think if I was answering this honestly and I had that kind of opposition, I will tell you, well, maybe I, maybe I wouldn't, but uh, I think I would struggle a little bit. Um, my wife and I have actually been through that. Um, we moved 600 miles away from home, and I'll just tell you, we got some significant pushback from people very close to us. It's hard. But what's most important? What is first? Following Jesus or your earthly relationships? Even your closest earthly relationships. What is most important? Now, teens, some of you are thinking, Jared's giving me good reason to rebel against my parents today. No, as long as you are under your parents' authority, you continue to live under your parents' authority. Uh-huh. My point is, if you have a clear call from God, if you know what God has led you to, certainly seek godly counsel, consider what is wisest, absolutely. But what is most important? Keeping peace within your family or following Jesus where he's leading? 
what's most important. That's what I want to ask. And that's the point I'm trying to make. See, Jesus following after him requires us to restructure our relationships. He's the point of life. Following him is the point of life. Glorifying him is the point of life. Enjoying him is the point of life. Even over those relationships that have been most important to us, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. See, following Jesus requires that we not only reevaluate success and that we reprioritize mission, it requires that we restructure relationships to the point where we say Jesus is first. Above everything else, Jesus is first. So what? Well, I started all this by saying, church, if we're going to follow Jesus the way we're supposed to follow Jesus, the way, we have, the way I would argue we must follow Jesus, it's going to require us to change. We can't continue going and doing what we were before. Instead, it's going to require that we change. We need to change the way that we evaluate success. Our desire must be the disciples will be made and the churches will be formed because disciples have been multiplied. That has to be our, our view of success. Are we discipling others? Because that's success. Whenever we share the good news is great. That's fantastic. But that's the start. That's not the end. We share the good news. We share that to begin with, but then we baptize people, and then we teach others to obey all that Jesus has commanded. That's called discipleship. We teach people to follow Jesus. That's success according to Jesus. Disciple others. We need to view success that way. We need to change by reprioritizing mission, even within the context of discipleship. That should be our mission. Like Our mission is to disciple others. We want to teach other people to become mature followers of Christ. Of course we want that. And if we continue to build our own kingdoms in this world, well, let's just back up a little bit. If you prioritize building the kingdoms in this world, your own personal kingdom in this world, why are we then surprised whenever our children think that's the most important thing? Why would we be surprised? That's what we've prioritized. And then we look at our kids, and they're just so busy like trying to build the kingdom in this world or build up earthly material gain, and we're like, I don't, just don't understand why, they don't, why they're not in the church anymore. I don't get it. I do. They've seen what's most important to mom and dad or to grandma and grandpa. They've seen what's most important. It's building the kingdom of this earth, not building the kingdom of God. How will you show your kids that Jesus is most important? How will you show your grandkids that Jesus is most important? Or, or on the flip side, we got a bunch of teens. How will you show your parents that following Jesus is the very most important thing to you? How are you going to show that that's the most important thing, that he is first? Let's focus on advancing the kingdom, living for Jesus' purpose, his purpose. And as we do, I believe that we will experience his power. I believe if we are focused on living out his purpose, we will experience his power in our lives. And I'll tell you, that's held true in my life time and time and time again. Um, one thing I do want to plug real quick, um, we do have a newly formed mission team in the church. Um, and they are starting to work towards how can we be engaged in our community, and not just our community, but in our country and around the world. How can we be engaged in mission, like taking the gospel to people who need the gospel? How can we be engaged in that? So while I know they're still working on some things, I would encourage you, wherever you are, to be praying and to seeking, be seeking how God might be leading you to encourage that team and to be a part of that team, to step in alongside them and go with them, like taking the gospel. Because it shouldn't be a handful of people who do all the work of mission in our church. It should be the church on mission. Now, we've encouraged this team to lead in that, to lead out in that area. But we, as a church, need to reprioritize mission where it is the first. And Jesus points to as much here today. And finally, we need to change by restructuring our relationships in such a way that show that Jesus is first. That he is our proton. 
the thing around which everything else revolves. Every other part of your life revolves around him. And again, again, what do you love most? What do you love most? Do you love your family before you love Jesus? And see, I think that's where we get hung up sometimes. Um, don't get me wrong, I love my family. And I hope my kids know that I love them, and I hope they know that I love them very much. I hope my wife knows that I love her and that I value her and that I would do anything for her. Um, but to tell you the truth, that love comes from the love that God showed me in Jesus. Um, and if our first love is not Jesus, again, we have misplaced our priorities. We, have re, we, ha- we need to restructure our relationships to where Jesus is first. Absolutely, you will love your family if you are following Jesus. Absolutely, you will. But if your parents think that you're loyal to them before you're loyal to Jesus, or if you are loyal to your parents before you're loyal to Jesus, again, I'm not telling you to be disobedient or disrespectful teens, elementary kids. Please be respectful and be obedient to your parents. That's biblical. But you also need to be more obedient to following Jesus. Or parents, if your kids think that you're more dedicated to them than you are Jesus, again, maybe you've you've misplaced your priorities. Jesus demands to be first. And the point in all of this is that Jesus has a purpose, and to live out of that purpose means to follow him with the changes that we need to make. Like, we have to follow him with everything that we have, putting him first in everything. So let's let our families, our community, the world around us know that we are completely and totally committed to Jesus above everything else and seeing his kingdom come. That's what we desire. That's what we want above anything else. Let's pray together. Father, uh, Lord, I thank you for this challenge. I thank you for the way you've worked in my life through this text. And I feel like I say that often, but I don't know why I'm surprised that your word constantly challenges me. Um, So, Lord, I thank you for it. I thank you for the calling you've placed on my life to follow you. Um, Father, help me to stop making excuses. Um, Help me to put your mission first to start seeing success the way you see success. Help me to start structuring relationships the way that you've called me to structure relationships, the way your word teaches us to structure relationships. Um, Father, I would, argue, I, I would not only argue, I would, I would certainly believe that many of us in this room need to make some of these changes. Father, I believe that we as a church need to make these changes, so I pray that you would help us. Um, teach us, move us in the direction that you are moving us, Lord. Um, we want to be faithful to you. So, Lord, I pray that you would show us how. Um, Lord, I want you to be first. Uh, above everything else, the most important thing. And, Lord, honestly, whenever you look at your word, it shouldn't even be close. So, I pray that that's the kind of church we would be. I pray that that's the kind of man I would be. And that's the kind of people we would be. Father, that we would put you first. And I know I know that that will lead to impact whenever we start seeing success the way that you've defined it, the way that you've demonstrated it. So, Father, let us cling to that. Let us make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that you have commanded. Father, let us be faithful to that commission and that calling. Father, and I know what that really means is let us follow you. So, Lord, I pray that you would renew that call on our lives and on our church, that we would follow you passionately and persistently. And not back down from the challenges that will inevitably come, Father, but instead remain faithful to you. 
And Lord, I know that only, that only happens as you send your spirit, as you renew us from the inside out, Lord. So I pray that you would send your spirit, that you would fill us, that you would change us, and that you would empower us to follow you faithfully. Um, Lord, for those who haven't ever submitted to that call, um, that invitation to follow you, Lord, I pray that they would submit to that leading. And they would turn to you, that they would repent of sin, and that they would... They would come to you wholeheartedly with everything they have. Lord, for those of us who have followed you for decades or more, um, Lord, I just pray that you would renew that and that we would have a new passion for following you. We pray for revival often. I pray that it would start now in us, here and now, Lord, that we would be given new life and that we would live out an abundance of that life that's offered in Jesus. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for the life you've given us. But most importantly, we thank you for Jesus who loved us, took our place, and was raised for us. So we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.